A few weeks ago, one of our summer interns, Jason Perez, came to us with an idea, uh, an idea for a show about persons with disabilities and about the way the term disability gets defined, uh, what its implications are. Um, and this is a world, as you will see, to which Jason is not totally a stranger. Uh, we've uh, had him develop this into a full-blown show uh, with the help of producer Betsy Kaplan. It's a conversation um, about how persons with disabilities want to be understood as opposed to the way that the world often understands them. Uh, I think we're going to go some pretty interesting places. I hope you stay with us. Join us after the news. inspirational. <laughs> I don't want anyone in this room to feel bad for me because at some point in your life you have dreamt of being disabled. Come on a journey with me. It's Christmas Eve. You're at the mall. You're driving around in circles looking for parking. And what do you see? 16 empty handicapped spaces. And you're like, God, can't I just be a little disabled? <laughs> All right, that's uh, uh, Ms. Maysoon Zayed. Uh, she's a very, very funny uh, comedian. Uh, she has cerebral palsy. That's what she's talking about there. Uh, we're uh, hoping to have her on the show today, but we're having a little trouble making the connection right now. We have um, a really interesting show today uh, brought forth by one of our interns, uh, Jason Perez. Um, and one of the things that Jason got me thinking about, and you're going to meet Jason in just a little while, uh, as well as one of our former interns, Lila Call. And I should say, both of them are now what we call little people which is still not my favorite. I feel like we don't still have the right term, but um, it beats some of the other terms. Uh, anyway, uh, Lila has been an intern here. Now uh, Jason's an intern here. Um, but it also made me th think of another guy that I worked with who died last February. So I'm just going to quickly tell you a story about him, particularly because we don't have May soon yet. <laughs> um, so, so in February of 2008... Um, Barack Obama came to the Excel Center. He was a candidate. Uh, he and Ted Kennedy came there. And it was an event that ultimately, ultimately attracted 17,000 people, just showed up, poured into the Civic Center. And so I was back with another station at the time. I was with WTICAM. And our plan was that I was going to broadcast live from that event. My show started at 3 o'clock every day. And so uh, I showed up, we showed up at the Civic Center hours ahead of time, and we got held up uh, by the TSA uh, and by the Secret Service. And uh, who knows? We, uh, we were stuck in this holding pen, and really hours started to pass. And I was just imploring anybody that I could find to talk to just to say, you know, we need some time. We have to set up all this equipment. We're essentially doing, we're setting up a miniature radio station right there on the premises, the way you do when you do a live remote. And with me uh, were some fellow broadcasters and a field engineer uh, named Kevin Ingalls. And Kevin was also a little person, which seemed to me not particularly relevant one way or another for as long as I've thought about this story until today. And I'll tell you why in just a second. So um, eventually, like really close to airtime, like really close to airtime, um, they let us in. 
and we walk over to our position or we run over to our position with all the crap we've got there. And this means like setting up a folding table and then putting all this equipment on this folding table and running cables out and connecting things, uh, plugging stuff into various portals and stuff, uh, setting up microphones, uh, all this kind of stuff. And Kevin kind of looked at us like he didn't even really want us going near this thing. And he set up this radio studio. I swear to God this remote broadcasting position. I swear to God, it was a record. If there could be records for such things. I mean, we all stood there in complete awe of what we were looking at. It was like one of those things, one of those videos you see where a soldier can blindfolded put together an M16 rifle in 13 seconds or something. It was like that. It, it was happening that fast. And we got on the air. We got on the air you know, a minute or two before we needed to be live on the air. And it just didn't seem possible as we had approached the position that we were going to be broadcasting from. And Kevin did it all. He didn't speak the entire time. And um, I and I realized that while we had been in this holding pen, while we had been uh, stuck in this holding pen, while I'd been sort of fretting and pacing and talking and whatever, Kevin had been sitting there mentally figuring out every single move he would make and boiling away any unnecessary moves, boiling away anything that would slow him down. Um, and so that by the time we got out there, he knew exactly every single move that he was going to make. And that, I would say for the last, what's it been, 10 years, uh, is the way that I've understood that story. It wasn't until... Today or yesterday, as uh, Jason and Betsy Kaplan started to get me ready to do this show, that I understood the other part of it, which was that Kevin's entire life had prepared him for that moment, that if you're a person with a disability, you hack things all the time. You are constantly confronted with, with problem situations. That's the way to put it. You're constantly confronted with problem situations, and you're constantly having to deal with them. And so you improvise. Things aren't set up to work in your behalf. So you make a plan. You make up a different plan. Uh, you, well, you hack it. You hack it. And that's what he did that day. And I think probably for him it, was, it wasn't even all that special because if you spend your entire life hacking problem situations, it doesn't seem all that special. Uh, so that's part of what we're going to be talking about today. It is one thin sliver of the conversation we want to have. Our overarching goal is to talk about what people get wrong about people with disabilities. Um, and so what we're going to do, particularly because we can't find uh, Maysoon right now, we, I'm convinced that we will eventually find her. One of the things I always say to the interns, I said it to uh, Jason, I said it to Zandra uh, the first time she came on the show. Zandra is Jason's fellow intern, is don't get attached to a particular outcome. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll get an outcome here one way or another. Be a Buddhist about it, though. Don't get attached to a particular outcome. So we're flipping around uh, the plan for the show. Uh, and what we're going to do instead is start with what we thought was going to be the middle of the show, a conversation between the two people that I mentioned before, Lila Call, former intern at WNPR, former uh, reality TV star of Little Women New York and Little Women LA, works in the hospitality industry, uh, and Jason Perez, a current uh, intern at WNPR, former reality TV star. This is going to start to sound a little repetitious. Uh, uh, Little Women New York uh, and uh, studied the hospitality industry. Uh, and Jason is the producer uh, of this particular episode of The Colin McEnroe Show, along with uh, the mentoring of Betsy Kaplan. And Jason will be performing for his ninth year in the Radio City Christmas Spectacular, starring the Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall uh, in New York. So um, 
as must have been clear from that introduction, Jason and Lila, um, you know each other. Um, and um, so, Jason, since you're in studio, uh, before we get to Lila, maybe you can just begin by describing the condition that you and Lila were both born with. Okay, well, first of all, thank you for having me in this studio. <laughs> I'm normally in the producer's booth, so that's great. Yeah. And basically what uh, Lila and I were born with is a form of dwarfism. So dwarfism is a condition of short stature. Lila and I have the most common, which is a chondroplasia dwarfism. And it's basically characterized by physical characteristics such as shorter parts of the upper arms, the upper legs, you know, a flattened bridge, a bigger head, bigger forehead. When you see us, you'll know what I mean. But <laughs> basically... Yeah, that's what it is. It happens in 26,000, one in 26,000 to 40,000 births. It's a mutation in the gene. So anyone can have a child with dwarfism. I am the only one in my family who has dwarfism. And I believe Lila is in the same boat. And yeah, that's basically a little gist of it. All right. So chaos is the rule here. We now have uh, Mesun Zaid. But before we go to her, we're going to go to her because her time uh, is limited and we just have to jumble things up a little bit. But since I introduced Lila, I want to hear her voice because I haven't heard it for quite a while, actually, and for other reasons as well. So Lila, we're going to get back to the conversation that you and Jason are going to have in, in just a second. But I was thinking about your first day here as an intern. And uh, you probably don't remember this, but I remember it. I remember I, what I remember saying to to you is, what do I need to know? Um, and your answer, I think, was nothing. I'll let you know if something comes up. I don't, maybe you could just say a little bit more about that. First of all, I hope I'm quoting you accurately. But it was something along the lines of, yeah, no, I'll let you know if there's something. Well, Colin, thank you for having me and just the advice you gave to our listening audience. Let's take the Buddhist approach to my first day at any job. Nam yoho renge kyo. Nam yoho renge kyo. Um, basically, I can't reach things. Mm -hmm. I can't reach the copier. I, if you want me to um, make a copy of something, I'm, I, I need a stool. You want me to wash my hands every time I... Um, go to the restroom. So just a bunch of stools to kick around. And usually, you know what, I'm so glad I have a job. Mm. I say, you know, I'll provide them. I'll bring them. They're folding. I get them a dollar, the Dollar Tree. Mm. <laughs> so, um, and and um, you did have it right. I, I did say, just just teach me the job. Take Everyone take off your headphones for one minute and tell me what I need to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um but yes, in in the interview, I, I usually don't address it, um, unless unless there's a big concern. I, I of course I don't go for occupations that require me to save a mother and baby from a bird, burning building, um, but competently I I feel I'm qualified, and the other the other little loose ends we need to tie up will be done as needed. All right, so we're going to come back uh, to Jason and Lila in just a second here. Uh, and what we're going to do right now uh, is go to the aforementioned uh, Mason Zayed, uh, comedian, writer, disability advocate, tap dancer. I'm not kidding about that. Um, she's an extremely funny person and an extremely passionate person. She has only one problem, which is that she's a Dave Matthews fan. But people can't be perfect. They should not. People should not be held to standards of perfection. Everybody has some kind of a flaw. Uh, so... 
Um, uh, you're laughing now. Uh, I was laughing really, really hard at your TED Talk. Um, maybe you could just, for people who haven't uh, watched your TED Talk or seen you uh, talk about your own life and experiences, give us a sense of, we played a little clip from your TED Talk before you, you, you got here, but uh, uh, tell people what it is that you tell people in a TED Talk. So, first of all, I want to thank you so much for having me on, and thanks to Jason and Lila for giving me the time and the weird window of time I have. So, thank you for accommodating me. Sure. Very disability friendly. <laughs> um, and second of all, Dave Matthews is my friend, so you be careful. I'll drive up to Connecticut because I think that's where you are. Nothing could make me and, happier. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Maysoon. I'm a comedian, a writer, a disability advocate. And I actually didn't become a disability advocate till much, much later in my career. Um, I started doing stand-up comedy in 2000. And I was performing in New York City, living in New Jersey, when 9-11 happened. And I'm Palestinian and Muslim. So post-9-11, the real focus of my comedy was much more about, you know, kind of countering the negative images of Arabs and Muslims in media, while also, like, completely getting rid of the stereotypes that surrounded us. And I didn't really focus on disability until I did the TED Talk. And then when I did the TED Talk, the reaction that I got was so shocking to me because I'm a privileged disabled person. And some people think, like, oh, if you're disabled, you have absolutely no privilege. Like, I joke about the fact that people come up to me all the time and say, I'd rather be dead than disabled. So, like, a lot of people think of it as the worst thing that can happen to you. And um, I live a very privileged life because I have parents who supported me. I had a financial situation that allowed them to take the best care of me. I had a public school that allowed me to be mainstreamed. And what I found out after the TED Talk was that people with disabilities face an enormous amount of violence, an enormous amount of discrimination, and an enormous amount of challenges navigating the American healthcare system as well as the employment system. And when I found out all these things, that's when my disability advocacy began. You know, it, it, one of the things that comes to me from your talk and some of the other interviews is there's sort of a, a, a double-edged sword here that's, I guess, both a, a win-win and a no-win-no-win. And that is, uh, on the one hand, um, it's important to recognize disabilities, and it's important to recognize the role that they play in life. And people who have disabilities uh, need, uh, well, they need the stuff that's in the ADA. Uh, it, it makes sense for them to also get certain kinds of advantages in terms of getting into college and stuff like that. You can you can talk about that. On the other hand, and this is the other edge of the sword, the way it looks to me anyway, they don't want to be seen. I don't know. I had a producer, my last producer of the previous radio station, a guy I hired named Tyler Convent, who's in a wheelchair from Spina Bifida. And he said, look, most people just see, they look at me and they see the chair. That's what they see. Um, and, and so maybe you can talk about sort of navigating those two things. You don't want nobody to ever acknowledge the the uh, the obstacles that are created by disability. On the other hand, you don't want that to become a pervasive identity. So uh, being disabled is definitely a part of my identity. And, you know, I do a joke on stage where I say in the Prussian Olympics I'd win a gold medal because I'm Palestinian, I'm Muslim, I'm a woman of color, I'm disabled, and I live in New Jersey. <laughs> so clearly, like, that's everything that you could have going against you. But I really don't think that we can disconnect from our disability. I think that what people need to understand is, yes, 
I'm disabled, just like a person of color might be a person of color, or someone who identifies as a woman might be a woman. But once you see that, you need to move on to all the other aspects. So it's not that it's not a crucial part of my identity. It absolutely is, especially because my disability manifests itself visibly. What I'm saying is, okay, so you know I'm disabled. Can we move on to all the other stuff now? And I feel like if you acknowledge it instead of ignore it, you're more likely to accommodate. And I know you didn't um, purposely use a negative word, but saying that, giving us an ad- the advantage we need mm-hmm. to get into a college, ADA and accommodations and accessibility, they're not advantages. Mm-hmm. What they are is the leveling of the playing field. Right. And I'm blessed and lucky to be, you know, a part-time professor at Arizona State University where I teach um, stand-up comedy. And one of the things that we talked about at ASU when we were discussing about how to make it a really great welcoming place for people with disabilities was having teachers and students understand it's not, um, you know, an advantage. It's not an unfair treatment to give someone extended test-taking time or to give someone a note-taker. It's allowing them to have a level playing field. It's not giving them an edge. So that's how I would kind of discuss it. Acknowledge the fact that they're disabled and then move on. Respect the fact that they're disabled and then move on. Treat everyone equally. Treat them as you would want to be treated. But don't ignore it because ignoring it means you're not acknowledging who they really are. You know, one of the things I know that we want to talk about here is representation, representation uh, of people with disabilities in culture. And, of course, I've seen lots of people with disabilities in culture. I mean, Raymond Burr in his wheelchair, Tom Cruise uh, in his wheelchair, uh, if you, we can throw in Dustin Hoffman playing uh, somebody on the autism well, the last spectrum. Seventeen actors out of twenty to win the Best Actor award yeah. at the Oscars were playing either disabled or um, or like ill, right. like dying. And um, of those seventeen actors, none of them were publicly identifying as disabled. We're, we're so, gonna, I mean, soon we're gonna um, play a little clip from your TED talk uh, about your own experience with that. Finally, my senior year, ASU decided to do a show called They Dance Real Slow in Jackson. It's a play about a girl with CP. I was a girl with CP. (laughs) So I start shouting from the rooftops. I'm finally getting to hit part. I have cerebral palsy. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God almighty I'm free at last. I didn't get the part. (laughs) Sherry Brown got the part. I went racing to the head of the theater department, crying hysterically, like someone shot my cat, to ask her why. And she said it was because they didn't think I could do the stunts. I said, excuse me, if I can't do the stunts, neither can the character. (laughs) This, This was a part that I was literally born to play, and they gave it. They gave it to a non-palsy actress. Uh, that was uh, the first time you dealt with that. But as you say, this is actually kind of commonplace and uh, not casting. That was the first time I dealt with it, and then it defined the entire rest of my career. <laughs> so I became a comedian because I didn't see people who looked like me on TV. And I did see people who looked like me in comedy, specifically Richard Pryor. But 20 years after my career has started, it is still, still a giant problem in media. First of all, 
people with disabilities are not being given the chance to play disabled parts. And a lot of us believe that visible disability, much like race, cannot be played. That it's inauthentic and offensive when someone like Tom Cruise is a wheelchair user or someone like Dustin Hoffman is doing a stereotypical dangerous caricature of what autism is. We feel like it's dangerous, it's harmful. And we're fighting back against two things. We're fighting back against the fact that stars love to take these roles because they win awards and they don't understand it's offensive. We're also fighting back against the fact that we're not allowed to audition for roles that aren't written as disabled. So why couldn't one of the women on Big Bang Theory be blind or deaf or a wheelchair user or have cerebral palsy? Why does every role that's not specifically written as disabled not open it up to the possibility of having a disabled person play it? The other thing I want to say is that, like, we're 20% of the population. We're only 2% of the images you see on TV, and 95% of those are played by non-disabled actors. And we have no idea how many people with disabilities are really on our screens because the stigma against invisible disabilities is so strong that even the most famous actors are afraid to reveal their disability because they think it might negatively affect their career. So, you know, I say later in the TED Talk, if a wheelchair user can't play Beyonce, Beyonce can't play a wheelchair user. I think that's the way we have to look at it. If it can't be done in reverse, then it's inappropriate to cast it that way. But we're up against a lot. I mean, Rock just played an amputee. You had Jake Gyllenhaal playing an amputee. You have Atypical on Netflix that has a non-autistic actor playing autistic, you know, and so on and so forth. So we're trying to change that, and I'm, I'm really blessed and lucky. I actually... Um, I'm developing a comedy series with Hazy Mills Productions and NBC Universal Studios, and we're trying to make history because it's going to be the first time um, on American television that a visibly disabled woman leads a show. I've had a lot of amazing, amazing predecessors, Marley Matlin, Jerry Jewell, but this will be the first time that we have a show where, like, disability is truly mainstreamed, and it's not a show about being disabled. It's a fictional character based on my experiences, and any actress could play this role. What makes her disabled is the fact that I am. So, Amishun Zayda, I know you have to go pretty soon. There's I do. A, I'm yeah. so sorry. Do we have time for one more question? One last question. I yeah. hope it's a fun one. Ooh, and I want to say something. Am I allowed to say something about Trump? Yes, sure. Okay, well, let me just say this really quickly in case we run out of time. Um, a lot of people talked about the fact that Donald Trump made fun of disabled people when he made fun of um, Sergey, the reporter from yeah. the New York Times. I just want people to know that is the least of the attacks that we have suffered under this administration. People with disabilities are under siege in America right now. Often people only think of health care issues. But Betsy DeVos has rolled back 72 protections for students with disabilities. The ADA is under siege, and they're trying to roll back some of those protections. And, of course, health care affects us. So disability rights in this country are really in jeopardy. And, um, you know, I, I hope that people think about that when they enter the voting booths in November and think about their disabled family members, the fact that any of you could join the disability club at any time. You're only one accent away. We're really fun people. Don't be scared. Mm -hmm. You know, and I want them to realize it's a lot more than just being mocked. 
It's a lot more than the endless ableism that we're subjected to. We are physically having our rights taken away. I think maybe that's a really important way to end this conversation. So yeah. why don't we do that then? Uh, Maysoon Zayed, uh, thank you so much for joining People us today. People can find me at maysoon.com. They certainly can. Uh, and uh, we'll take a little break. Unfortunately, we're not playing you out with any Dave Matthews uh, music. At least I hope not. Uh, and uh, we'll be back with more of Jason and Lila. We are back. Uh, we are continuing this conversation. In fact, we're picking up a conversation that we uh, had to interrupt to do another conversation. I told you, don't get attached to any particular form or outcome. Uh, Jason Perez is many things, including the producer of this episode of The Colin McEnroe Show, an intern at WNPR, former reality TV star, uh, star of Little Women in New York, with Lila Call. Uh, Lila Call is with us now also. Also a former intern of WNPR uh, and uh, a former star of uh, Little Women New York and Little Women L.A., uh, we're now works in the hospitality industry. You know, since uh, Mason uh, left off talking about the ADA, uh, I want to talk to you guys about it, too. Um, and, and Jason, I'll, I'll have, have you kick us uh, off. So um, basically, the uh, you're covered uh, as I think it probably the language probably says something like dwarfism or something like that. I don't know what it says in the actual bill, but you're you're covered by the ADA. Is that an important thing to you or uh, I don't know? I mean, what are the upsides and downsides to that? I think the upsides is that we have an organization that has our back, and we don't have to fight the battle alone. And I think a lot of people who maybe have more limitations are maybe not able or not willing to go out and fight the good fight. So the ADA definitely helps some people. It helps me, and if there's certain things such as handicap decals for your car that people need, and why not, you know? Exactly. Um, uh, Lila, I think also one of the mistakes that um, persons without disabilities make is just sort of, you know, once that word uh, disabled or disability gets thrown out there, it's kind of a blanket that covers everybody the same way. I think you and Jason would say you guys aren't even exactly the same in terms of, I mean, Jason is a little a bit taller than you. He can probably like reach stuff that you can't reach, right? Not everybody's uh, dealing with the exact same set of disability issues. That's correct. Uh, one more inch, Jason, and you're kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the advantages and disadvantages of disability, I can go back and forth, um, but it is there, and, and um, as something that may be a bit easier for us, it's quickly recognizable, where... Um, uh, someone with a mental disability or so forth, they might have to have a longer conversation or even like a sense of proving it. Well, uh, you for you know you knew right away. Okay, we're going to need um, to make some sort of modifications or or whatever. And and when uh, West Hartford put in free parking for the disabled, um, that was amazing because you really can't time someone on how long it takes them to get out of the car, put the coin in or in this case uh, nowadays, your debit card, and reach the decal and put it in your dashboard and then go back to the store and try to um, you know, be a good consumer in your community and then make it back in time for the meter. There's so many little things that we need to have the, um, the, the disability as part of our 
um, everyday identity. And, um, th- I mean, parking is just one of a billion. Um, but, yeah, it, it, like Jason said, having an organization to fall back on when it's, when it's time to say, um, I would like to adopt a baby or I need to reach out to a, um, a new family that uh, just they're both of um, average size and they have someone affected with a dwarfism, you know, let me give them all your information and where they can come and, and have workshops and even expos where things can be purchased to make life a little easier. I remember growing up in a very small town in Ohio and getting um, – things in the mail, like to be able to do light switches. It was a long plastic plexiglass um, piece that bolted onto the switch plate. And, you know, um, yes, we have needs, and Mm -hmm. yes, we are disabled, um, but the limitations certainly um, are fewer than um, the advantages to having a dwarfism in our identity. Look at us, we both got a reality TV show and uh, being short, uh, ironically, wasn't enough to keep us going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have um, a, 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 any uh, strange um, drama more than being short in our lives. So, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm just going to stop it there. Okay. So, yeah, well, as long as you mentioned that, though, so this is an interesting part of all this. You both worked in, in entertainment. And, and Jason, you know, it's interesting talking to Mason because she was saying, you know, at the beginning she thought being Palestinian uh, uh, was probably, a, and a Muslim is probably uh, a bigger uh, obstacle than than cerebral palsy. Um, but um, in each case, there when you work in entertainment, once again, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Um, because of who you are. So people who are Muslims sort of say, "Well, we, I get, you know, <laughs> I get offered a lot of terrorist roles. I get uh, a lot of villain roles. I'm the guy with a bomb. Uh, I'd like to be offered kind of some more mainstream kinds of roles." Uh, I'm assuming, uh, once again, for little people, there's like there's things like the reality show, which I, I think is probably a pretty positive experience. But I guess I know for a fact that you've been offered lots of things that maybe you didn't feel as comfortable with. Yeah, the roles typically for little people are elves, leprechauns, monsters. I've had someone literally, when I went to the club for the first time, run away from me when she saw me and start screaming. That was my first experience at a club. And it wasn't Rosie O'Donnell. It was no, it wasn't, <laughs> and that was my experience. And nothing's wrong with those roles. Mm-hmm. You know, people who, especially little people who devote themselves to the entertainment industry, they have to put food on the table. So I respect it. I'm an elf at the Radio City Christmas Spectacular, but what I love about it and why I this will be my ninth year is because it's a respectable environment and people treat you as a human being first before just a little person. So, yeah. Speaking of putting food on the table, I know this is a somewhat painful memory. Mm-hmm. You were a banana at one point, right? Yes. You know, that's the thing. They say there's no small role. There's only small actors. <laughs> well, yeah. that was both situations in one. Yeah. I was a small actor, and that was a small role. And I had to dress up as a banana, and it wasn't a problem about that. The problem was how people treated me on set. Like when I needed help with my costume fix the person was looking at me like I had three heads. I said, I don't have three heads. I have one, and I'm just shorter than you. So look down, please. As a child, I was I was cast in a community theater role in small town Wheeling, West Virginia. And I remember my mom 
being labeled the huge stage mom because I was just a street urchin in My Fair Lady with coal on my face and, and selling flowers. And she said, Lila, the curtain call is going to be fast. You have to run. Actually, I, she said, do not feel the, the pressure to run. Um, take your time. I don't want you falling because she didn't want me to be embarrassed, you know. And and the director at the time was just like, why is she going so slow, you know, in the first night of the production? And, you know, we never cleared it with anyone. It was just mom being mom and, and just saying, take your time, blow a kiss, and get back. By then, Eliza Doolittle is waiting to make her bow. Um, I, I um, want to talk. To, I, I was going to talk to Mason about this. We ran out of time, but you guys can talk about this, too. So I feel like there's sort of, once again, two things going on. One of them is there's ways in which I think because society's making certain kinds of progress anyway, and because of maybe even things like the reality shows that you guys have done, uh, that that, peop- that disabilities are getting more normalized and uh, a little bit more part of the, n- the new normal. On the other hand, we live in an extraordinarily cruel age digitally um, in which anything about anybody uh, is fair game uh, when you're online, when you're on social media accounts. And I know that you guys do in the reality TV shows. I mean, you were obligated to have social media accounts. Mason said, says in her TED Talk that as she grew up with a loving family and a community that knew her well, she never really experienced taunting, teasing, stuff like that until she entered the world of social media where it was uh, startling to her. I, I don't know. Maybe, Jason, you can start out here. What's that been like? Well, until I started the reality show, did I really grasp, grasp the term of cyberbullying? And when you're a little person on social media, that's even 10 times. And I've had people said, oh, referring to me by the M word, midget, and saying, I want to uh, tie you to my car and I want you to die. And I, you are a duff. You are the designated ugly fat friend or you don't deserve to live or this and that. Lila and I have experienced that, and people are relentless. Mm. People are relentless. We know that. And until we stand up with organizations like the American with Disabilities Act, will our voices be heard? Lila, did you want to elaborate? (laughs) It is true. And they say um, no attention is worse than bad attention. Um, But people who are just so freely and anonymously able to you know, point out characteristics and laugh at um, the way we walk or um, how we look or the size of something. Um, It is very demeaning and very um, cruel and kind of a little Neanderthal um, way of thinking. And uh, just basically, I'd rather be uh, ridiculed by my bad weave than uh, the size of my head. You know, it's, it's not nice. Um, we're going to run out of time here because we also want to get to our, our final guest here. And Jason's put a lot of work into uh, creating uh, this very interesting show. But I think th- there's a question that I th- each of you need to answer. It's the, kind of the theme uh, of this show. When we figured out what was the thread that would run through it, it was what people get wrong about people with disabilities. Like if you could just teach people maybe one or two things that they don't seem to know now, they don't seem to understand. Jason, you get to go first. I'm handing you a magic wand. You can fix a couple of things about the way people think about other people. Thank you for that magic wand, and I hope it was real. But the basis of it that I want people to realize is that little people or anyone with a disability is still a human being. We have feelings. We have emotions. 
I've had people laugh in front of my face as though I don't have the competency to understand. I understand. My brain is the same size as you, maybe bigger. <laughs> and I understand what you're doing. And would you do that to your loved one, to your mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister? No, you wouldn't. So why would you do it to me? Or why would you do it to anyone who you consider as different? All right. Um, and uh, pass the wand over to Lila. Thank you for the wand. Okay. Um, I honestly, it's just we are disabled. It's it's 100% true and accurate. And with that, any any sort of person with any sort of adversity, be kind and n- not give them a free pass in any in any way, like Maysoon's parents and Jason's parents and my parents, you know, we had the same challenges and the same expectations. But enough already with the the bullying and the cyber. Sorry, I was trying to put another call. Say that last thing. Enough with the bullying and the cyberbullying. Yeah, enough with the the overall bullying. And we do put ourselves out there by being a public figure on a TV show. And for the most part, I you know Xanax is really great when you have five hundred tweets. Well, I wish five hundred, but two or three tweets saying you're a big head freak. And I just you know. It goes by, but for the most part, we've had a good experience with the show and um, uh, the bullying. We just we just consider them uh, uh, aliens and knock it off. All right. I bet you were thinking about a different word to use there, and I appreciate the fact that you didn't do it, Lila. All right. We have to go on to the next segment. Thanks to Lila Call and Jason Perez, both people that I've had the great privilege of working with. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Today's show was produced by Jason Perez with help from Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Raymond Burr. On tomorrow's show, our tribute to Sand. And now, back to Colin. All right. We want to talk a little bit more uh, about design, and we want to talk about design with a designer, uh, Liz Jackson, designer, disability advocate, founder of uh, the Disabled List, uh, and uh, somebody who, um, well, you know, actually, first of all, uh, Liz, welcome to the show. No, thank you for having me. Um, you know, one of the things I was going to talk to Lila and Jason about, but I ran out of time, so uh, I'm going to hand it off to you because I think it's uh, dear to your heart. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time on your website, The Girl with the Purple Cane, and I was going to ask them about fashion. You know, to what degree, you know, everybody, well, except for maybe me, everybody wants to dress nicely and look good. Um, and one of the things you talk about is that so many of the things uh, that are universal design, that are about creating environments and spaces uh, for for everybody, including people with disabilities, don't think very much about beauty. Um, and maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, um, for me, I look at design from multiple perspectives, but I actually, my belief is this, that disability is designed. And so um, when I first uh, acquired disability, which was about six years ago, um, for me, the question became, when I got out of the hospital, I needed eyeglasses and a cane. And for me, the question became, why do I have so much choice with my eyeglasses when I don't with my cane? And so when you look at fashion or design, there's this sort of idea um, about the, the products that um, 
make up a, disa a disabled person's life that um, it's really problem solution. It, do it doesn't make uh, room for choice. And so um, I think one of the biggest issues in, in fashion and design for disabled people is, is that people think that we're problems that need to be solved rather than people that have autonomy and identity and, and want to sort of pick accordingly for ourselves. I mean, even something like a wheelchair, although I have to say that a very, somebody very close to me had ALS and had some pretty high-tech, incredibly fancy wheelchairs as the disease got worse and worse. But probably the basic design of a wheelchair hasn't really changed very much. Yeah, the, I mean, if you look at the basic, the collapsible, the collapsible wheelchair that you see everywhere, the, the design hasn't changed since the 1930s when it was first designed. Um, and if you want to sort of look at it in sort of in tandem with another form of design, you can look at um, the collapsible wheelchair, which I think it was designed in 1933. And it was around the time that Marcel Brewer was creating uh, chairs out of tubular steel. And so both of, you know, both the collapsible wheelchair and these Marcel Brewer chairs were, were both very innovative at the time. Um, and they, there are parallels between their aesthetic. Um, but now when we look back at the Marcel Brewer chair, we see beauty and we see, you know, where it stands in sort of a timeline of history. Um, but we have, haven't had a chance to look back at the wheelchair because it hasn't evolved at all. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there are there are more technological chairs. You know, there's um, motorized chairs and um, uh, and uh, self-propelled chairs. Well, but uh, and BMW uh, invented, uh, designed this incredibly high-tech chair for the Paralympics, but I don't get the feeling that that kind of bleeds back into the market of, like, everybody else who isn't in the Paralympics. Yeah, I mean, in, in that kind of, have you had a chance to speak about inspiration porn yet? No, no let's talk about inspiration porn. Okay, so inspiration porn is really um, this idea that disabled people are we're really nothing more than objects of inspiration, our, our sort of our mere existence. Uh, it's, it's as though we're intended to inspire you, um, to make you, the general public, feel better about your life. And so a lot of what is written about disability in the, the public sphere is oftentimes uh, very inspirational. And what that does is it ends up elevating um, everybody but um, the disabled person. Um, and so... One of the things I look at is is when a brand decides that they're going to target a disabled or when they're going to touch disability, are they actually targeting the disabled consumer or are they targeting somebody else? And so when you look at the BMW Paralympic chair, what you see is is that they brought in a NASA scientist that made um, four uh, aerodynamic uh, game-changing wheelchairs for the Paralympic Games in Rio, and they ended up being a huge success. And afterward, I had an opportunity to ask uh, both the NASA scientists and, and some of the marketing team from BMW if they were going to take what they had learned from this process and use it to make wheelchairs for everyday users. And uh, the question was so obviously no. Mm. And that's because they weren't actually pursuing this, uh, trying to tap the disability market, which is an emerging $8 trillion market the size of China. They were simply using us, the disability community, as a brand enhancer to say, look at this good thing that BMW did. Um, when uh, companies make things uh, for the uh, public, uh, for, the, for persons with disabilities, uh, reading your writing, I get the feeling that one of the things that they sometimes don't do is talk to that group of people. They make something, I mean, it sounds insane when I'm saying it, but they make something, uh, they make a product which they intend for use with uh, persons with disabilities without asking them. Yeah, so I actually look at the summer of 2017, I tend to call it the summer of two adapts. And so what you have on one hand is, is you have my disabled peers at National Adapt, which is a disability self-advocacy organization. And they were out um, in the halls of Congress, they were on Capitol Hill, they were in senatorial offices all over the United States, and they were protesting and fighting for basic health care rights. Mm -hmm. And they succeeded. I fundamentally believe 
that it was the people of national adept that actually saved healthcare for everybody last summer. But at the same time, what you had was is three global brands. You had Target, you had Zappos, and you had Tommy Hilfiger. And all three of them debuted what they called adaptive clothing lines. Um, and it was really interesting when you sort of saw the rollout. It was frustrating because, first of all, not a single one of them uh, consulted a disabled person. Uh, they oftentimes turn to charities and, and loved ones instead of speaking to us. It's sort of common practice. Um, but when Target... Uh, they decided they were going to make a T-shirt that made a statement. And, and for me, I thought it would be interesting if they pulled from disability culture, perhaps a national adapt protest sign that says our existence is resistance or nothing about us without us. But instead, the, the thing that they wanted a disabled child to wear on their shirt was be grateful. And that really harks back to this idea that we are simply recipients rather than drivers of design. Uh, but what I have learned is that disabled people, we're the original life hackers. We are forced to navigate a world that isn't built for our bodies. And so we, we create innovative solutions that have been known to change the world. I, um, I often think about the story of, uh, do you know what FingerWorks is? Well, I do. I don't want to step on your punchline because I, and the only reason yeah. I do is because I've watched your videos and read your stuff. So I'll, yeah, pretend, so I'll pretend I don't know. No, what's, I don't think I've ever the, used anything so, well, like that. <laughs> so the story of FingerWorks is, is there was this guy named Wayne Westerman um, who had some carpal tunnel and some tendinitis. This was in 1998. And he decided he was going to create a technology that would allow him to continue working uh, so he created Fingerworks, and then in 2005, Steve Jobs bought that technology. It's the iPhone touchscreen, um, and this is really the thing: is is that disability ingenuity changed the world. Um, in 1655, there's a guy named Stephen Farfler who was a paraplegic and a watchmaker, and he decided he wanted to make the first ever self-propelled wheelchair. And unbeknownst to him, it actually became the precursor for the modern-day bicycle. And so it seems to me that while we are oftentimes driving designs, we are left out of the design process. And and really, as I've studied this. I found that much of it actually kind of comes back to language um, and that sort of inspirational doing for, because um, it's never actually for us, it's for everybody else. Um, if you take a chance, uh, a moment to Google, you'll see the phrase uh, design for disability yields more than twice as many results as uh, disability design. Um, and it's just simply because uh, we are perceived to be recipients rather than drivers. Let me just, uh, um, Liz Jackson, uh, get a call coming in from Herb in uh, Hamden. I want to get him on the air. Hi, Herb, you're on the air. Uh, yes, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for taking the call. Um, I am an amputee and therefore a person with disabilities. And um, I'm an advocate for my fellow uh, limb loss community. And I, I guess I, I'm glad to get on to, to give a message. I'm expecting that there are um, more than the usual number of people with disabilities that are listening to your show today. Um, and that is, uh, this is a special season with the election season. And uh, we are participating in the uh, the Americans, with the Association of Americans of People with Disabilities, the AAPD that uh, Kennedy is presently uh, chairman of. Uh, and that is vote as though your life depends on it because it does. That's a great point. And th th this, we, we are, um, I myself and my colleague, uh, we founded an organization called Connecticut Amputee Network for legislative advocacy. We had a law passed this season, and we're very pleased that we were able to do it for amputees and others of limb loss, and that allows insurance fairness for prosthetics devices so that now private insurance companies in the state of Connecticut, which is the 21st of 50 states that have passed this kind of law, says that you must give um, coverage for prosthetic devices at least equal to that what Medicare and Medicaid do. You can imagine Medicare and Medicaid give better coverage 
for people with disabilities that are specifically limb loss than um, uh, a private insurance company will do today. Herb, that's a, that sounds like an excellent. Uh, first of all, congratulations on that, and congratulations on the message about political activism. I should say, people with disabilities are statistically, uh, proportionately more pol- politically active than people without disabilities. So, if you're a politician uh, listening right now, uh, bear that in mind. Uh, and yeah, they, as Mason was saying earlier. Uh, they're headed for the polls uh, once again. Hey, um, Liz Jackson, I wanted to make sure that we had time to end with at least uh, maybe one kind of positive message. We only have about uh, two or three minutes left, but um, maybe you can just talk about one company that's doing it right, uh, a, a company that seems to have understood some of the concerns that you're raising and responded well. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that stood out to me recently was Google Creative Lab. Um, they um, decided that they wanted to collaborate with uh, this woman named Tanya, who communicates with Braille. And they worked together to create a technology called Hello Morse. And uh, through it, uh, Tanya has been given the opportunity to teach about uh, what it means to be able to communicate through Braille. But she's also opened the door um, and now has a more accessible technology so that um, it allows other other people all over the world to communicate more freely. And for me, what was so powerful about Google's approach was is that they they never implied that they had done anything for Tanya because they had not. They had worked together. Um, and the message that was uh, put out into the world was, what can you know? What can we do to um, amplify Tanya's voice and allow her to teach? Uh, because Tanya is a teacher; she's not a recipient. Um, that's uh, probably a, a great way to end. And even if it weren't, we're basically out of time. Uh, Liz Jackson, designer, disability advocate, uh, founder of the Disabled List, and I, I really recommend Liz's website. We're going to link to all this stuff uh, on our page, but I, I absolutely uh, recommend her website, The Girl with the Purple Cane. A uh, lot of information there. All right, so um, I've got just a little bit of time left to say that uh, this has been a summer of two really terrific interns, uh, Jason Perez and Sandra Allen. They were both involved today because Sandra's on the phones. Uh, and uh, this is a very exciting uh, day for me because Jason produced this show and because the host didn't screw it up. See, there's a certain point in the day where the producer's done everything right, everything that could possibly uh, be done right has been done right. Uh, and I'm handed this really out- terrific outline and I look at it and I think, yeah, but what if I screw it up? So anyway, I don't think I did that. And we had a little problem at the beginning of locating May soon. We got through that, too. It's a good lesson for a producer to learn. Things go wrong and we kind of steer the ship around the rocks and we get it uh, back moving again. But a uh, great work by this uh, young producer uh, and uh, great work by everybody else. Thanks for listening. Uh, tell other people about this episode if you think it would be important for them to hear. And it's available at WNPR.org slash Colin. All of our shows are there.